personified that pride more than linebacker Zach Thomas. For the record, number 54 finished the season as the Dolphins' leading tackler, setting a Dolphin rookie record with 180 stops. But he also set the tone for Miami's rapidly maturing rookie class of 96 by playing all out all the time. with a heart every bit the size of his seismic hits, Thomas parlayed his passion for the game into big plays. Chandler play action is back. He's under pressure. Fires. It's intercepted. Zach Thomas. Zach Thomas. Zach Thomas. It's a touchdown. Zach Thomas. Intercepts. It's a touchdown, Miami. All right, Miami. What an unreal play by Zach Thomas. Hey, Dolphin fans. I made it. Check this out. Hey, so you, you don't have to vent no more about me not making the Hall of Fame, but I'm very proud to represent you guys, represent my teammates in Canton in this August. So get ready. Let's go. This five-time All-Pro linebacker that let the Dolphins lead the league in defense, Zach Thomas. You're listening to the Miami Dolphins Podcast Network. This is Drive Time with Travis Wingfield. Back to throw to a looking. Flips it down the wide open. <laughs> Touchdown, Tyreek Hill. Unbelievable. Just flew by him for a second time. Tua knew where he was going right away. All the hitters out there, man. I really hope you soon jump on his bandwagon. Waddle. Waddle. To a shotgun. Back to throw. Looking. Steps up. Fires. Touchdown. Got it. It's Waddle. His sixth touchdown Six pass touchdown of the game. day. Drive time with Travis Wingfield begins now. Let me check your pulse if you're not fired up. Welcome to a very special edition of the Drive Time Podcast, part of the Miami Dolphins Podcast Network, covering your team, your Miami Dolphins. How's it going, everybody? I know you're fired up. I am. I'm your host, Travis Wingfield, and on today's show, you heard it off the top. Hall of Famer, gold jacket wearer, number 54 in your programs, number one in your hearts, Zach Thomas has been elected to the Pro Football Hall of Fame. Let's go, baby. Give it up for Zach Thomas. We're going to cover his induction and then get right back into our season review series. The final part of it. How many was it? Nine parts, I think. All things told, looking back at the 2022 season with an eye towards what we've got heading into 2023. Today, the offensive line plus my Super Bowl preview and final record reveal of the 2023 picks. Busy show from the Baptist Health Studios inside the Baptist Health Training Complex. This is the Drive Time Podcast. That's another Miami Dolphins. Once again, congratulating Dolphins linebacker Zach Thomas 
on being elected into the Pro Football Hall of Fame. He will join his former teammate, Jason Taylor, in Canton, alongside the great Jimmy Johnson, who you heard basically do the entire Hall of Fame gamut for Zach Thomas. He was the one that informed him of his election into the class. You heard him there on stage announce Zach Thomas will also hear him in August at the Pro Football Hall of Fame. Thomas is the 11th player or coach from the Miami Dolphins to be enshrined in the game's greatest honor. One of the best linebackers to ever do it, man. I'm going to talk about his stats here and give you my own personal spiel and perspective on watching number 54. I was, as you guys know, the biggest diehard Dolphins fan as a kid. Every time I had a chance to watch the Dolphins play on television, it was typically a primetime football game because I grew up in the Pacific Northwest, and we didn't get too many regional Dolphins games out in the Northwest. But the Dolphins play lots of games on Sunday night and Monday night football. In fact, that's a big reason why I became a fan of the team because I got so much exposure to them at a time when the Seahawks weren't that good of a football team. Uh, And Zach Thomas was a massive, massive part of that, especially with that pick six against the Titans on opening night uh, on Sunday night football where he flipped into the end zone, got the game winning or, or game clinching, I should say, interception. And that was just one of many, many memorable plays from Zach Thomas, shutting down Jerome Bettis on the goal line. His first game from you, that script you heard, they're talking about his rookie season uh, with the hit on Sean Jefferson. Just one of the most pure, technically sound players. And we're going to hear from Zach here in just a moment on what he thinks made him a Hall of Famer in terms of the traits of his game. And as someone that loves, you know, the X's and O's behind the game, a person that is infatuated by the game, not for the physical, you know, aspect of it, but the, the chess match of it all. That's why Zach Thomas is so special to me. He'll talk about that pre-snap acumen here in just one moment. His career spanned 13 seasons, 12 of those with the Miami Dolphins, 1,734 tackles. That ranks fifth in NFL history since those began back in 1987, my birth year. Uh, His seven Pro Bowl selections are most all-time by a Dolphins defender, and he was named to five first-team All-Pros and seven in total, two second-team Uh, All-Pro honors for Zach Thomas. Fifth-round draft pick in 1996 was the 96th AFC Defensive Rookie of the Year. Led the NFL in tackles twice. Led the Dolphins in tackles 10 times. Earned the Dan Marino Team MVP honors twice. Three Don Shula Leadership honors and was named NFL Linebacker of the Year twice. He was the Dolphins' middle linebacker during a run of seven straight seasons that the Dolphins finished in top 10 in total defense, 1998 to 2004. I wrote a story that's going to come out on MiamiDolphins.com about that, about how those great defenses and Zach Thomas in the middle of it all, confusing Peyton Manning, uh, earning the respect of a guy like Kevin Mawai, who didn't like Dolphins. He was a Jet for a long time. Those guys aren't supposed to like each other, and he was had nothing but admiration for Zach Thomas in the way he went about this game. We've heard you know Nick Saban talk about Zach Thomas. We've heard all of his coaches, Jimmy Johnson there. O.J. McDuffie's told me millions of times, Seth, about the way he works. The great story on the fish tank about the Cheeto dust, where the, the house that he and Larry Izzo lived in had Cheeto dust all over all the light fixtures and switches because Zach didn't have time to wash his hands between film sessions. He would just bang that light and get on to the next thing, whether it's weights, practice, or something football-related. This guy eat, breathe, slept football, and now he's going to do that in Canton where he can have conversations once the lights go down with all the bust, having those John Madden conversations with his teammates like Jason Taylor and with Jimmy Johnson. I want to go ahead and play a sound bite here from my favorite all-time Zach Thomas moment. It came on 2005 opening day 
This is arguably my favorite Dolphins game of all time. I even mentioned it to Coach McDaniel in my first sit-down interview with him. It was McDaniel's first game in the NFL. Here's a three-play sequence out of four where Zach Thomas makes stuffs at the line or behind the line of scrimmage to thwart a Broncos goal line attempt to find pay dirt. No dice when 54 is around. Piloted by Jason Taylor and Zach Thomas, the Dolphin defense crashed Denver's vaunted rushing game. Three consecutive plays there. Zach Thomas making big stops on Tatum Bell, Broncos running back. And again, all for a loss. Like, that's just the type of player he was. He knew it. He saw it. He felt it. He shot it. I want to go ahead and play some audio here from Zach Thomas's post-election press conference with local South Florida media. And there's two parts I want to play. Number one, the feeling and, and talking about that moment of getting the call. And then finally, his last comment, he talked about what he thinks made him a Hall of Famer. And I, I, you don't see this on a podcast, obviously, but when he was asked about it, he talked about his pre-snap and his face lit up as he talked about how much he loved the process of walkthroughs. I just thought that was so Zach Thomas of him to say, let's go ahead and go to Zach first on how it felt and, and just his emotions getting elected into the Pro Football Hall of Fame class of 2023. Oh, man, it's amazing. You know, I'm just a... Small town kid from West Texas, man. And for me to be here with all these greats, legends, I mean, that I used to watch and even play with, um, it's just an honor, man. It's humbling. And I'm just so grateful for everybody that helped me along the way because you're not self-made. And, and uh, but to look back when I was eight years old and, you know, just to, it would be a huge dream for me just to make it to the NFL, but to end up being Hall of Famer is crazy, man. It's crazy when I think about it. I'm proud to represent all our defense. Man, we had those great defenses when I played, and and uh, I owe it to all those guys. Uh, I guess somebody has to get the credit. You know, my D-line did all the work, and uh, I'll take the credit, but uh, – I know this is I'm so grateful for those guys, the linebackers that I played side by side. It was just a fun journey. And uh, it's uh, it's a humbling uh, honor for me, but I'm just so grateful just to, you know, even get this far. And the second part, I promise talking about the prep work that went into being such a great, great player in the middle of great Miami Dolphins defenses. Well, first, uh, like I said earlier, I, d I didn't fit the part. I'm in the middle of the defense. You're supposed to be the Dick Buckus, you know, Brian Erlacher type look, you know, and I didn't fit that part. Um, I feel like the one thing I will say that was really good of mine was my prep. And my pre-snap was really good. And uh, towards the end of my career, it wasn't great from the beginning. But once you start fine-tuning everything, and, and I was so happy, so confident going in every game later years, you just get smarter. You get more efficient with your time. You get smarter. That's why pretty much a walkthrough was so important to me um, before even a live practice when it came to preparing. And, you know, everybody kind of over – underlooks walkthrough and and because my alignment is what won for me you know i got to give myself the best chance and and uh if you just take care get line up right your odds of winning on that play go up 
And uh, I think that's where that's where I feel like I was my pre-snap. And uh, because that was one thing that I felt like, you know, we got the quarterback as the, you know, the quarterback of the defense. I mean, offense, I was a quarterback of the defense. And to get our team lined up before pre-snap, that was big and underrated because nobody knows when you line up right or right or wrong um, besides the coaches. And that was the one thing I took a lot of pride in. I'm getting this lined right. And if they come out in a certain formation, it's all about keeping yourself out of a bad play than not just trying to win every play, keeping yourself out of a bad play. So for me, that's what I miss the most. And that's what I feel like was underappreciated was my pre-snap and how I lined my guys up once they came out with the formation. So there you go, ladies and gentlemen. Zach Thomas, Pro Football Hall of Fame, Class of 2023. It's been a long wait, and he's finally in. Well-deserving, one of the best football players I've ever seen. And now he's number 370, uh, player number 370 in the Hall of Fame. What a career, what a player, what a person. Zach Thomas, welcome to Canton. Let's go ahead and pick up the podcast as normally planned or scheduled if in the event that we didn't see Zach go in. Luckily, we got to do those uh, 15 or so minutes here on the podcast. Let's go ahead and pick it back up with the offensive line review from the 2022 season. Before we take our first break here, I wanted to address something kind of off the top, you know, after the, the great Zach Thomas news, and it fits into the regular segment here on the show that we have called Scanning the Social. And I tweeted earlier in the week, Something about Tua crushing another narrative. And I used a Queen lyric to do it because I thought it was fitting. And I thought it was funny. And there were some replies in there, but more so that I saw a tweet from a regular listener who said that Travis is no longer doing it for him. The podcast is no longer doing it for him. That I'm not critical enough. First of all, what have you been listening to? <laughs> We've been doing this for like the last three weeks now. Where we're talking about needs and wants and things that aren't working out and things that are working out. I believe in this team and think it's absolutely on the right track. I don't know how you couldn't be. I mean, didn't we all say last offseason how a top 10 offense for the first time in 25 years would be awesome and a sign of real progress and fixing a side of the ball that's needed, that's needed fixing for the last 25 years? Now the defense did regress, and, you know, that happens. But now you get arguably the top defensive coordinator in the NFL, maybe, to coach a defense that's brimming with talent that fits his scheme really well, perfectly capable of acknowledging the areas of improvement needed. This team has to get better in game management. I've been rewatching the broadcast copies of the game. Every week, we would burn two timeouts in the first quarter. That has to get better. You know, all, I'm very well aware of that. Better running game has to be able to complement the passing game better. We have to have better stability at the quarterback position. Tua has to play more games. We have to have better linebacker play, and we need better health at tackle and cornerback. I'm aware of all that. I've talked about all that. But it all goes back to this. Why do we move the goalposts so harshly with this team, but more so with the quarterback? And I couldn't help myself on the Wednesday show, and here I am doing it again on a Friday show. But like, man... This is exactly what happened with Ryan Tannehill and my coverage of Ryan Tannehill. I'm not pushing that two was the best quarterback in football. I'm not pushing he's a top three quarterback in football. I'm pushing that he can absolutely play. And we saw that. I'm pushing against the people who said he couldn't play. And I pay attention to this. You know, I've tracked this. I remember the, progress the progression quite well. Jack talked high very well. 
First, he couldn't throw it more than five yards. Day two of camp, he dials up a 60-yard strike to Tyreek Hill on air in one-on-ones. Okay, well, he can't do it in team against a real defense. Then he does. Then it was against uh, Noah Igbenogany, which wasn't good enough. Then he did it in a preseason game against the Philadelphia Eagles and against the Eagles in practice and those joint practices. Well, that's just the preseason. It's just practice. Then he does it against Baltimore. Well, those are just bad defenses. Then he engineers a game-winning drive against the Buffalo Bills. Well, you know, they were injured. And that takes me to the tweet where I said, what do you know? Tua trumps another narrative. And that's my point of contention here. Again, I know he's not currently the best quarterback in football. I know there's parts of his game that are a little bit limited. But I also know what I see, and what I see is high, high, high level quarterback play. And the third best EPA against top defenses, who was ahead of him? But Mahomes and Burrow. And by the way, if you can't read a four quadrant chart, it's not my problem. It's on you, man. But that's the company Tua kept this year in deep passing, third down passing, pressure, like literally every category, every passing statistic, he was up there with those guys. And then the reply I would see from the detractors was, well, Jimmy Grapple's up there. That stat doesn't mean anything. Like, are you sure? We focus on two games in December that were bad games. We focus on him missing a few games. And again, those are bad things. I acknowledge that. But can you acknowledge the way that he played is what you've always wanted since you've been a fan of this team? Because I know not many of you are old heads. You've been looking for that level of play at the position since 1999, and to be quite frank, earlier in Dan's career, like 97, maybe 95. That's my thing, man. Like, I'm not arguing this is the best thing that happened to quarterback play since sliced bread. I'm arguing that Detractor said he couldn't play the position, and he proved it in a massive, massive way. The idea that we were once again, you know, changing this bar. Like, (laughs) what Tua did this year proved everything you read about him this summer wrong it pisses me off that we're still in this position where we're questioning it and the best of the bunch of the people on the bird app that you guys know about they don't know ball but they sure are loud about it they think that you should just move off this quarterback just dump him and hope you can find something else do you understand how the nfl works i mean that's rhetorical i know the answer to that but teams don't just cut bait on 24 year old supreme talents because there's one or two things they're concerned about especially when that thing is health First-round picks get six, seven years of leeway getting picked up by teams after they get cut because they're first-round talents. Now, the quarterback position, you're going to bail on the potential of that position? The injury thing, by the way, can change in an instant. It did for Drew Brees. It did for Matt Stafford. Hell, I remember people saying Ryan Tannehill was no longer reliable and couldn't stay healthy after that 2018 season. Then he goes to the Titans and has two straight years of no injuries and top 10 quarterback play. A few games missed each season is not enough to just outright say adios to a 24-year-old quarterback with star potential on his rookie contract. Scoffing at the upside of that is insane, especially for a Dolphins fan. Absolutely insane. Now, I can understand you saying I'm a little bit anxious about a long-term contract for a quarterback that hasn't stayed healthy. I get that. But when you sit here and tell me he can't play and you have to move on this year, shut up. Okay, let's go ahead and take our first break right there. We'll come back on the other side and do the final roster review offensive line. That's next. Drive Time Podcast, your host, Travis Wingfield, brought to you by AutoNation. Had enough of those supplements that leave you feeling nothing? Symbionica is your solution to great-tasting, all-natural supplements that actually work. Crafted with premium plant-based ingredients, their products have no seed oils, fillers, or toxins. Try them out and actually feel the difference today. Visit Symbiotica.com and use code IHEART for 15% off plus free shipping on your subscription order. Again, that's 15% off plus free shipping on your subscription order. Go to Symbiotica.com. C-Y-M-B-I-O-T-I-K-A.com. 
It's the last portion of our roster review series here on the Drive Time Podcast. I don't have a good reason why the offensive line ended up last. Originally, I was matching the position groups with top 10 videos. Sacks for the front made sense. Takeaways for the defensive backs. Checks out, right? Either way, we wound up with the biggest position group here at the end for the last in-season podcast, and we'll make it a Super Bowl pick, I should say. We'll make the Super Bowl pick at the end of all this. And then next week, we have some really fun content planned for y'all with the Vic Fangio uh, hiring, I think, coming official next week. In the meantime, centers, guards, and tackles together. Let's go ahead and dive in. We saw a lot of progress here with this group, and due in large part to two slam dunks. Uh, two home run off-season acquisitions in Teron Armstead and Connor Williams. Teron shows you the type of leader he is, the impact he had not just as a player, but an impact in the rest of the offensive line. And at his last press conference, he mentioned that he was advised to get surgery that would have ended the season back in week one. And 19 weeks later, the dude's playing in a playoff game that frankly, without him here for 13 regular season games, I don't think there is a playoff game. The leadership in that room, the coaching he provides in practice, just an invaluable piece of the organization. And Connor Williams went wire to wire playing in the pivot. I can't say enough about him bringing stability to that position and how important that was. Last offseason, we talked at length about how important the center position is in this offense and how everywhere McDaniel, McDaniel was with Kyle Shanahan, they always had really good center play from Alex Mack in both San Francisco and Atlanta, and Mack retired this year. And I thought it would be a big loss for the Niners, but they got some really good play from Daniel Brunskill at that position. They had Mack in Cleveland, too. And in fact, Alex Mack is the only plot point this argument needs. They literally brought him from Cleveland to Atlanta to San Francisco. Enough said about that. Uh, but Connor Williams was awesome. And then Rob Hunt was the only player on the line to go the distance also. He missed one snap this year. But he continued his progress that he's shown each year and now enters year four for my money, one of the top guards in the National Football League. Remember what I referenced countless times here regarding the offensive line, the Daniel Jeremiah philosophy? Not every team can have five all pros on their offensive line. The key, he says, is not having any tomato cans. And that's a harsh phrase, but you get what he means. So for Miami, I think you look at the trio of guys you have that can that have proven they can play in the system and you mix in the irons and the fire you presently have among the guys that, you know, didn't play the full season. And there's some upside there. And I I get not wanting to to trust fully going back in that direction because, you know, it didn't work this year at right tackle and left guard performance and injuries both just didn't, it didn't work out there. We had to be honest about that. So we'll see what happens with, you know, guys like Austin Jackson, who Chris Greer said they were so fired up about last summer. He just couldn't stay healthy this year. Liam Eikenberg was, In fact, playing his best football before the injury in Detroit came back and it kind of regressed a little bit there too. So I get the consternation over those two spots. We've also got Rob Jones, who's played well in flashes. And then, of course, some other guys out there on the roster with the draft and free agency coming up as well. It's an interesting and tough spot this offseason. In fact, I think the hardest spot to address this offseason, and I'll tell you why here in just a second. Offensive line allowed 35 sacks this year. That's the 10th fewest in the National Football League. 177 pressures per pro football focus was the 25th fewest. Again, going back to the quarterback position, what does that tell you guys? Two was really good at mitigating pressure, always has been. 4.3 yards per carry was 19th best in the NFL. The individuals, Connor Williams had a 98.6 pass block efficiency. That was top five among all centers. Just 16 pressures, two hits, and three sacks. So only five times he got the quarterback hit. It's very good. Uh, Michael Dieter did not play this year. Isn't that weird? Like the only guy that didn't play on the offensive line after all the injuries we had. Number 65, Robert Jones, 13 pressures, three hits, and three sacks. 97.5 PBE. I think it's a very good year for Robert Jones. I like his game. I hope he has a chance to, to compete for a starting job, if not being that interior swing man uh, up on the offensive line. Fellow Robert 
Robert Hunt, 68. Uh, 24 pressures, four hits, three sacks, 98 pass block efficiency, and he was absolutely dominant in the running game this year. I thought it was a Pro Bowl season. Number 70, Kendall, Kendall Lamb uh, played 32 snaps in one game, didn't allow a, a pressure, had 100 uh, PBE in 32 snaps. Brandon Shell, 71, he's a UDFA, 40 pressures, eight sacks, or eight hits rather, two sacks, and a 95.4 PBE. Teron Armstead was sixth among tackles with at least 700 snaps with a 98.1 pass block efficiency. He was great. 16 pressures, two hits, and one sack for Teron Armstead, according to Pro Football Focus. Austin Jackson had six pressures allowed this year. No hits or no sacks, 94.4 PBE. That's, again, we talked about this before. That number has to go up at right tackle this next season. Number 74, Liam Eichenberg, 96.3 PBEs, very low for a guard. 27 pressures, seven hits, and two sacks. Greg Little, 35 pressures. He was actually second on the team in this in this uh, statistic behind Brandon Shell, who played, you know, the most snaps of anybody besides Connor and Rob, which is crazy. But he had 35 pressures. Greg Little did eight hits, four, eight hits, four sacks, and a 94.2 PBE. It's, again, that right tackle position struggled this year. 78, Jerron Christensen did not play. We have Lester Cotton on a futures contract. He played in the wild card round. And Keon Smith on a futures contract as well. And then the reserved injured player that did not play was Eric Fisher. When you look, <coughs> excuse me, when you look at free agency at the tackle position, it's tough because I don't know how you issue a huge contract here when you need to extend Rob Hunt, Connor Williams is due next year, and Teron Armstead has big money for two more years. It's a challenging puzzle to solve. That's why they get paid so much money to do that stuff because it's not easy. But the market is difficult here. On the offensive tackle, I really like Mike McGlinchey. Uh, Kyle Krabs doesn't agree with that. We have some fun conversations about that back and forth. I think he's you, you plop him in and he fits right away. He knows the coach. He knows the system. You know what you're getting at right tackle if you get him. And to me, that's a huge key for this entire offense to take another step. Get that right tackle position solved for your quarterback and for your running game. To me, McGlinchey does that. Does Orlando Brown shake free in Kansas City? He's another really premier option. Beyond that, though, there's not much. I like Andre Dillard because of his makeup. He is a Washington State Coug, so I'll, I'll take the uh, the hit on that. But I think that his he hasn't cracked that Eagles O line really at all. It's been it's the best O line in football, and he struggled. But I think maybe a change of scenery, maybe a new system, could be of help of him. He's a very athletic player who played well in space in the air raid up in Pullman. Maybe he can do the same down here if the Dolphins want to bring him in. I don't know, but he's a name that popped off that list. I think Jawan Taylor is an interesting player, but the Jags have the scratch, but they also just paid Cam Robinson and gave a bunch of contracts out this past offseason. Does he shake free? He is a premier option as well. And then I put Colton McKivitz uh, as a former Niner on the list and a couple other guys. My top options are McGlinchey and Taylor. My mid option is George Fant. He's super athletic. He played under Michael Fleur for the Jets, so it's kind of similar to the system. I don't really care for the rest of the mid you know, contract options. Storm Norton and Trey Pipkins both played under Frank Smith in, in Los Angeles. Maybe those are options. Your bargain options were McKivitz, the former Niner, and Andre Dillard, who's been a bust of a first-round pick out of Washington State. In the draft, uh, you can cross the top five or six names off. It goes every year this way. Another good class, and the position goes by fast. I wish I could say Darnell Wright from Tennessee, but he's going to go off the board before we pick. He had a great senior bowl. That snatch trap move he uses, very effective in pass pro. Blake Freeland from BYU is interesting. He's a wide zone product. He didn't go on a, a mission at BYU, so he's not like 26 years old like most of those guys are. Uh, he's super nimble, but he needs strength training. 
uh, before he can be an effective pro. You heard Kyle on the Monday podcast talk about Matthew Bergeron from Syracuse. Went back and watched his tape. I like him a lot, especially in pass pro. And I love Dewan Jones from Ohio State. Monster of a man with really good movement to boot. He was a clinic teaching tape constantly in Mobile. Again, tricky spot the Dolphins find themselves in here because you already have a lot of money in the position. You have draft picks into the position. You have to get better at the position. The market's not great. You don't have a premium pick. It's tricky. I'm curious to see how they do it this offseason. And it's also tricky inside because I think there's two top options here if you want to sign your left guard. I, I don't think that it makes I'm not, I'm not going to say it doesn't make sense, but I can see why you would balk at it. But Dalton Reisner, especially with the news that we had reported on Wednesday, by the way, that uh, the Dolphins found their offensive line coach in um, Butch, Butch Berry, Berry Butch, Butch Berry. <laughs> yeah, he's the offensive line coach reportedly here uh, to sign to Miami. But he was with Dalton Reisner in Denver last year. I, I've always loved Reisner's game. He was a senior bull hit for me four years ago from Kansas State. I liked his game at right tackle, but he's moved to guard and played really well there, which that flexibility is very you know, very prominent for the Dolphins. And then Isaac Samalu from the Eagles is one of the best right guards in the game. He'd have to move positions if you signed him, but you get the idea. Those are top-tier options in that mid-tier. I don't love it here. Tom Compton's a former Bronco under Coach Barry there, so I guess that makes sense. And then Ben Powers isn't really a scheme fit from Baltimore. I just like his game. And then on the bargain side of things, I put two Jets also in that uh, Mike LaFleur system. Dan Feeney, who I was a big fan of coming out of Indiana four years, five years ago, and Nate Herbig, also a former Jet. In the draft, i got to be honest with you guys, I have to do more work here. Cody Motch from North Dakota State's awesome, but I think he'll go off the board before we pick. Jarrett Patterson at North, uh, Notre Dame is a good option as well. And then Andrew Voorhees, the USC guard, is a player I am personally a big fan of. So there you go. There's your offensive line look. Let's go ahead and take our last break and come back and preview the Super Bowl. And I also want to talk a little bit more about Vic Fangio. That's next on the Drive Time Podcast. Your host, Travis Wingfield, brought to you by AutoNation. Had enough of those supplements that leave you feeling nothing? Symbiotica is your solution to great-tasting all-natural supplements that actually work. Crafted with premium plant-based ingredients, their products have no seed oils, fillers, or artificial nonsense. It's just pure goodness in every pouch. Try them out and actually feel the difference today. Visit Symbiotica.com and use code IHEART for 15% off plus free shipping on your subscription order. Again, that's 15% off plus free shipping on your subscription order. Go to Symbiotica.com. That's C-Y-M-B-I-O-T-I-K-A.com. Back here on the Drive Time Podcast, taking a look at the final football game of the season. I'm pretty fired up for this one, but I have a question. Is there anything more bittersweet than the Super Bowl? Like, I've always, always, always loved watching the Super Bowl from back in the early 2000s when they ran that annual commercial where it showed various fan bases rejoicing and then at the end of the commercial, they would cut to black with just white text that said, everybody is O and O. I loved that com- that commercial. It's technically supposed to be the best game of the year, right? I mean, the two best teams, and this year you get two 16-3 teams, so I kind of feel that way. And the implications of every single play, like legacies, a champion to be crowned, who will play in the Thursday night opener next season? I like looking about at that. Dolphins play both those teams next year, by the way. I love being present during the game with all that stuff. Championship games, flat out rule in every sport, but you take the best sport and the best league. I call that a 10Xer. But then at the end, there's no football. <laughs> I played golf last Sunday. That was cool. But man, weekends aren't the same without football. Let's just be honest. 
To me, the Super Bowl is the most bittersweet event in all of sports. I think day three of the draft is similar, mostly because you put in all this time and prep into the draft, and then in the blink of an eye, it's gone. And really, the last temple event of the offseason. Now, granted, since moving here and working for the team, I do enjoy May and June with OTA practices that I get to be a part of. That's that's a, a lot more fun than it was previously. But with that said, I think this is the best matchup we've had in the Super Bowl since Chiefs-Niners maybe Patriots-Eagles. It's ironic how the measuring stick for each team that's featured here played in those games as well. I think it's because the Eagles front, a historic pressure defense with 70 sacks this year, 15 more than the second-place team, which was the Chiefs. I think the Eagles have the best front seven and the best offensive line in football. I think the Chiefs have the second-best offensive line in football, and that Eagles rush against the Chiefs' offensive line We had this matchup in 2021, but Lane Johnson missed the game, so the Chiefs just moved Chris Jones out wide and had him rush the backup left tackle all game. I can't wait to see the game plan with Lane in the lineup here. I think you can make a case for every single player on the Eagles offensive line that they are a top five player at their position. It's just crazy how they've built that under Howie Roseman. Then you factor in what Jalen Hurts adds to the running game. You factor in Devontae Smith, who, man... When when it became more and more apparent that Kyle Pitts was going to go off the board early because I loved his game out of college... I had a lot of internal debates about Waddle versus Smith. Two of my favorite prospects I've ever watched, ever. And Waddle won out for me because of his speed. But Smitty is ice cold too, man. And don't forget A.J. Brown too. Like, what the hell? I think the Eagles have a clear gap in terms of having the best roster. Getting James Bradbury after he's cut from the Giants is just like, come on. The rich get richer. Darius Slay, that's 1A and 1A to me. Avante Maddox is also a beast. Chauncey Gardner-Johnson. You locked on Dolphins day oneers know how much I loved CJ, GJ, CJ, PJ, PJ. I mocked him to Miami in the first round every chance I got that year. But I think the Chiefs have the greatest equalizer. The best quarterback I've personally ever seen. And look, I know it's premature for that, and I generally despise legacy talk over a single game. I get it's the Super Bowl. Jewelry's at stake. But whatever happens in this game doesn't change what five years of Mahomes' tape has taught me, that he's one of one. I think it's him and Marino as the best in terms of pure talents at the position. Do I dare make a top five list here? Hmm. I'm not going to make an order, but my top five quarterbacks ever are Dan Marino, Patrick Mahomes, Tom Brady, Peyton Manning, and this is literally impossible. Every list is wrong that you do of this. My gut says Elway. But see, now I'm omitting Joe Montana. But also the Bill Walsh quote about Joe Montana, the system made Montana as much as Montana made the system where Dan Marino was the system. That right there ends the argument to me. I don't know. All right, back on the rails here. The best team versus the best player. Historically, the best player doesn't win those matchups. Like, the league MVP typically runs into a team that's a little more balanced in the Super Bowl, and it almost always goes the way of the more complete team. In fact, it has for the last 20-something years. Recently, MVPs haven't been getting to the big game. Rodgers the last two years, Lamar Jackson in 2019 got bounced in his first game. Mahomes in that epic AFC championship game against the Patriots in 2018. Brady won his last MVP in 2017, the year they lost to Philly. Matt Ryan, we all know what happened there. Cam Newton, mm mm-mm. Rodgers in 14 lost that fun Seahawks team. Manning got walloped by the same Seahawks team the year prior. A running back in 2012, uh, Adrian Peterson. Rodgers and the Packers again lost to the Giants in that NFC Championship game back in 2011. Uh, Brady again in 2010. Manning loses as the MVP to the Saints in 09. Manning again in 08. Or, or, uh, Brady to the Giants in 2007. Um Ladainian Tomlinson and the Chargers got beat in 2006. Sean Alexander lost in the Super Bowl to the Steelers back in 05. 
You know what? Before I started doing this, I didn't realize how far back it goes. The last league MVP to win the Super Bowl the same year, do you guys know when it was? Kurt Warner in 1999. That's a trivia question. In fact, I stopped in my prep work to go ask the video staff here today when they thought the last league MVP was to win the Super Bowl. Nobody guessed more than five years ago. That's crazy, isn't it? It's crazy to me to think about. So either Mahomes bucks that 22-year-old trend or the Eagles win. Give me the Eagles, uh, not my original Super Bowl pick, but my pivot once my pick got bounced. Buffalo, I know, going out on a limb there, Buffalo, Philly. I will say, I remember working on those season preview pods back in the summer and texting one of my group chats the day after the NFC East and just said, are the Eagles like going to win it all this year? Kind of feel like they are. And that aged very well. Some other picks did not age so well, like the Seahawks with the first pick in the draft and then going into the playoffs this year. That's a big old backwards K for your boy. Give me Philly. I'm 10-2 and two in the playoffs. I lost the Buffalo Bengals game. I lost the Giants-Vikings game. I was 189-80-2 in the regular season, which means the Eagles win would give me 200 for the year because of the 10 playoff wins. I didn't log last year's playoff picks, but I know I wasn't 10-2. and two. I won 188 games last season, so we're consistent. One more win this year, uh, plus a much better playoff run. Before we get out of here, I was just looking at the Denver off-seasons when Vic Fangio was hired there starting in 2019, and there were some themes. First, I've seen the idea that he only goes after big linebackers, and there are some 255-pound big chunkuses in there, but there's plenty of 235-pounders too. It's more style than anything. I mean, Baron Browning's a perfect example. Beat blocks because you're good at beating blocks, not because you can just run through guys. Granted, you need something extra to defend the run from those two high structures, but I can show you a Hall of Fame linebacker here who did that all the time at 230 pounds, same Zach Thomas. He also went to work in the defensive backfield, never common traits there too. Quick twitch, long speed, good change of direction, not big players, but zone and man match experience. That's a very prominent feature you're going to hear a lot about in this defense. That was across the board. He also went after ball hawks like Bryce Callahan and Kyle Fuller. Kyle Fuller, both those guys followed him to different places at multiple stops. I'm pumped, man. Last thing I wanted to look at was how he created production or helped create production for his players. There was always an emphasis on a big nose tackle. Uh, we have that with Raekwon, but he can't play every snap. And it was always a veteran. And I think we can improve on the other end of that rotation this year to give Raekwon more help in that position, maybe even start over him if, if you get a, a bigger name guy, like maybe an Akeem Hicks. We'll talk about him here in a second. Let's go reverse order here. Uh, from the, the production of stats from certain players in his defenses, starting with 2011 and the Niners, Alden Smith had 14 snack, sa- <laughs> sacks, not snacks. Carlos Rogers had six picks. So did Deshaun Goldson. And uh, Rogers was a 30-year-old cornerback who kind of followed the same path as like an Xavier Howard, where changed from a, a, one scheme to another and took it and ran with it. I think you can see the same thing happen with Xavier Howard. In 2012, Alden Smith had 19 and a half sacks. The picks were down. 2013, he had eight and a half, and Tremaine Brock came up with five picks. Eric Reed had four. You constantly see one ball hawk at corner, one ball hawk at safety, X and Javon perhaps. In 2014, the sack production dipped, but Parrish Cox had five picks. Antoine Bethea and Chris Culliver each had four picks. Lots of takeaways there. In Chicago, this is where it gets interesting and why I brought up the interior pass rush because it goes from 2015 all the way to 2021 with the same theme. Lamar Houston had eight sacks. He was an inside guy. Think about Wilkins and Sealer, that big defensive end, uh, defensive tackle combo player. Akeem Hicks had seven sacks in 2016. I'd look into him for that nose tackle job. He's a 34 years old now or something like that, but I think he's a great option to give you, you know, 400, 500 snaps inside. Hicks, eight and a half sacks in 2017. Leonard Floyd had four and a half. And then in 2018, 
18. Kyle Fuller had seven picks. Eddie Jackson had six. Again, that's I'm thinking X. I'm thinking Kohu. I'm thinking Javon Holland. Khalil Mack had 12 and a half sacks, and Akeem Hicks had seven and a half. And then Denver, check this out. Justin Simmons had four picks, five picks, and five picks his three years there. It's Javon Holland, man. Pat Sertan had four picks his final year there, uh, Vic Fangio's. But the sack numbers... Von Miller had eight in 2019, but Derek Wolf had seven that year. Shelby Harris had six that year. Those are your big, heavy ends slash defensive tackles. In 2020, Malik Reed had eight sacks. Bradley Chubb, as a rookie, had seven and a half. In 2021, Shelby Harris had six ha- sacks, and Draymond Jones had five and a half. So I'm looking for more pass rush production from that defensive tackle position. I think you need more interior rush but I think there's a lot here that he's had before that you can kind of use those analogs and replace the production. I think corners will be encouraged to play the quarterback's eyes more. I think Javon Holland's going to be given way more opportunities. And I think we need to figure out what that off ball linebacker spot looks like, but pretty close here to having the full compliment. So good stuff all around. I hope you guys enjoyed that. We're going to have lots of Fangio content for y'all next week. In the meantime, the last day to register for the Dolphins Challenge Cancer event is now. So go ahead and do that if you have not done it already. The race will get ran on February 25th. It's the biggest fundraising event in the National Football League. Our man, Jason Jenkins, the head of that, Javier Sanchez, also runs that as well. So plenty of people involved in this great, great event that we put forth every single year. I cannot wait to see you guys out there for the event at DCC on February 25th. In the meantime, that's going to be my time. You all, please be sure to subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts. Leave us a rating. Leave us a review. You can follow me on Twitter at Wingfield NFL. Follow the team at Miami Dolphins. Check out the Fish Tank podcast. Also, the YouTube channel with media availabilities, Dolphins Today, all kinds of content for you guys there up on the team YouTube channel. And last but not least, MiamiDolphins.com. Until next time, fins up, Caroline and Cameron. Daddy's coming home.